tonight. I really appreciate uh, your attendance. We're so excited to have you all here. Um, I'm Ann Michael Sussman. I'm one of the directors of AIA's newly formed, uh, AIA Georgia's newly formed uh, Equity and Architecture Group, which is a statewide group, obviously. Um, Ann Rogers is another director, and Nicole Seekley is also a director. And um, we are sprung out of Networking Women, which is an AI Atlanta group, and this is our first year really kind of taking on equity as a whole, so not just women and also not just Atlanta, so statewide. Um, we've got a podcast set up so that we're recording what we're doing here so that folks elsewhere in the state can also be included in this. Um, we're trying to get more and more participation as the years go by, so that'll be, you'll see probably more events popping up in other chapters as well. But, um, so first off tonight, we're gonna have um, a nice presentation from AIA's Nas AI Nationals uh, Diversity and Inclusion Team. They are so kind to come all the way from DC to join us tonight to share their recent reports um, on the state of diversity and inclusion in the field. We've got um, Damon Leverett, who's the Managing Director of Diversity and Emerging Professionals, and we also have MJ Calloway, who is the Director of Diversity and Inclusion. So give them a nice warm applause and welcome. something we didn't plan on doing in 2017 at all, and we've been to about six cities, including New York, Los Angeles. I was in Minneapolis two weeks ago. Uh, Emily Grandstaff Rice is in Philadelphia, and uh, we're going to Baltimore and some other places in the near future. So uh, I think that what I've found is that uh, us getting out of our office in Washington, D.C. is always a great thing for lots of reasons, <laughs> but uh, I think being out here and, and where the groundwork is really being done uh, I was very moved by Michelle Obama's speech where she said that uh, national organizations need to support the local work because that's where the uh, grassroots activity is actually happening and we need to stay out of the way of that but provide whatever support you need. And so I really appreciate the way she said that and I think we believe in that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So right here is actually the Women's Leadership Summit from uh, 2015 and MJ and I were saying, oh yeah, we know that person here. And, uh, so uh, that actually is about 300 people, and it actually it's three. For how many were at the conference two couple weeks ago? All right. uh, so uh, that was 400 people in Washington D.C. a couple weeks ago, and uh, we're going to try to not double that number, but because we sold out in about 30 days, we recognize uh, that we need to grow that conference. Uh, in fact, we, we had over 100 people on the waiting list in about a week. And if we had left it open, we would have ended up with 200 people on the way. So do you think that's telling us something here? <laughs> would you guys agree? So uh, we're going to try to grow that conference. And it's, I have to say, it's a, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's just like this. It's, it's so much fun, and um, we're so happy that we can participate in that and, and look forward to the next one. Okay, so I'm going to introduce uh, MJ Calloway here. He's going to talk a little bit. We're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about what we're doing at the AIA on the national level. We're going to talk about demographics, just for your own information. And uh, I happen to be the numbers person in the office on demographics, so you can ask other questions about that. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Equity Commission and the subsequent Equity Committee, which uh, has already met three 
times this year, letting you know what our action items are and where we're going forward from there. So, MJ, would you like to talk about what we're doing? Sure. And feel free to stop me with any questions or anything like that. It's very informal. I don't mind. So, first thing I want to talk about our scholarships. We, our, um, some of our um, younger staff and uh, younger members and those who are still in college and in the programs want to know about scholarships. So, we have our Payette Show Ping Ching Memorial Academic Scholarship. Those are for grad students. It's a $10,000 one-time scholarship a year for one person, but you can, the person can reapply the next year. Um, young lady for yes, young woman. Women, woman. Women only. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we have the AIA, AIAF Diversity Advancement Scholarship, which is a uh, annual scholarship, which you will receive uh, for undergrad, Student, um, they receive $3,000 for a five-year, four or five-year period. Um, Benjamin Moore Diversity Scholarship, um, again, a, we do this annually. It's $4,000 for four or five years for a student of uh, color, minority student. And then we have the Armstrong World Industries Foundation K through eight architecture and design in school company. Is this the new name for that? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, um, they actually don't like it either. They changed the Armstrong. Actually, as, as most of us architects know, there's Armstrong Flooring and Armstrong Ceiling. They're actually two different companies. Right. This is Armstrong Ceiling, and it's now called the Armstrong Foundation. Okay. It's, it's, it's I knew it had changed because that's a whole lot. <laughs> As long as you get some money, I'm saying no matter what. So this is new. I participated on the jury for this in the first year. This is for components who have um, um, programs, summer programs, after school programs, programs throughout the year. Um, we gave them up to $5,000. They had to provide us with information about their program. Had to be um, mostly centered around those in uh, the underserved population area. Um, some of their programs, they had to tell us, you know, what they're doing, um, the demographics of the area of the program, um, some of the budget for the program, and they could ask up to $5,000. And I believe we gave out 24 or 25 of them. Uh, I asked about 15, yeah. Did, did uh, oh, yeah. Atlanta win? Yeah, Atlanta did as part of our Discover Architecture. Yeah. Right, that's right. We had 24 people submit. Yeah. 24, 25, yeah. But we tried to we tried to give away as many as we could. Right, we and, did. Uh, and Atlanta was a winner as well. And it was very successful. I was I was very interested. It was interesting reading about all the programs that um, the um, the components put on. Okay, does anybody have any questions about? So we also hold diversity events at um, uh, convention or what is conference now, not convention, conference. Um, and diversity and inclusion we have, um, we do celebrate Black History Month at AIA National. Um, this year we actually had Paul Williams' granddaughter 
she came and spoke to us about him, told us some very interesting information that we had really never knew about him. Uh, but it was great. We uh, At conference, we hold our LGBTQI uh, and allies reception. I don't know if any of you have attended, but it's always a, a great event. Um, and that's done at every conference. Um, multicultural fellows reception, those um, Fellows newly elected, and the, uh, it all, it's also attended by uh, um, fellows who congratulate the, the new inducted fellows. Uh, women in Design event. How many of you attended our event and conference this year? So it was a kind of a brunch. It sold out, and so we're um, you know our net conference uh, next year is in New York, so we're trying to find the space to make sure we have room for everybody, but it was a great event, networking, eating, so. Um, um. Yeah, I also want to add that uh, we had this idea, we said, why don't we have a brunch for women at the conference? And we said, well, maybe 50 people will come or something. No. And we got almost like a visit from the fire marshal. It was getting so yeah. crowded, it was, it was almost <laughs> so successful. <laughs> Yeah. We, we can't grow it that much because New York is very, very uh, limited in space. But yeah. when we get to Las Vegas in 2019, we're going to try to bump this one up significantly. And it's a huge success. So uh, thank you for, for, for participating. Yeah. Um, we all, at, at conference, there's also a meeting of the World Deaf Architects. They meet. Actually, David speaks at their event um, each year. Um, and then I know some of you, I was just talking to someone who attended the Women's Leadership Summit. That is also a responsibility of, of the Diversity and Inclusion Department the AIA. That's a big um, whale to take on, but um, it was very, very successful. As Amy said, we sold out. Um, and if you, if you did attend it, you, you probably uh, got a little different feel. This time around, there were breakout sessions, and, and that is a little different than the ones before. So, um, for those of you attended, I hope you enjoyed it. She said she did. I did. Um, and then we have um, on the off years of the Women's Leadership Summit, because you know that's only every other year, we have a, what we call a multicultural summit. And um, for the last couple of years, we've had uh, diversity training at grassroots. Um, we the first. Uh, years ago we uh, trained our um, board and strategic council um, unconscious bias training and um, th this year we had uh, a uh, two diversity sessions at grassroots and um, for me uh, I've been at the AIA for three years I've been told this is you know something that, that hadn't happened in the past so I'm very proud to have um, had uh, these sessions at Grassroots. Yeah, I also want to add that uh, uh, we also did it at CASE annual meeting, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to, to send that program everywhere. So we have an expert called Dr. Shirley Davis, if you want to look her up. And she is uh, an expert in diversity and inclusion, and she's actually the facilitator of this meeting. And essentially, uh, the focus really uh, we want to emphasize is unconscious bias training. It's not diversity training because it, it kind of turns folks off. But it really tries to work with people to understand that we're all born with biases. And then if we are people of power, we affect the lives of others. 
And it's a really great session. Most people come out of it enlightened, and, and many of them uh, encouraged about uh, implementing it in their workplace, and, along with other architects and, and, uh, and in their community as well. And also, speaking of unconscious bias training, all the staff at AIA yeah. have now been through the training, um, and it was required. Um, I even went, even though I have been through the training many times, but. Um, and I, I wanted to see how, you know, the engagement level and staff came out of there thinking, I, you know, I didn't know about this. I'm so happy that we had this training and, you know, helped me a lot to understand biases. Any questions about any of our events? Great. Last one I'm going to talk about is our K-12 working group. So this working group has met, I think, twice this year. They're about to meet again. Um, their focus is um, instructional guidelines, pipeline, and career track. It, they're, they're working at engaging educators, engaging architects, and emphasizing how architecture touches all demographics and income groups. We just recently hired on a K-12 director and um, actually Damon and uh, his name is Dell. Um, they are going to meet with the group and really define exactly how they're going to implement um, and move forward with some of these initiatives. Um, am I forgetting anything? Yeah, I will just add that um, it's funny uh, that MJ and I were having coffee next door here before this event, and we sat next to a person who was actually in diversity and inclusion in Denver, and eventually she heard us talking, and uh, she wanted to know uh, what kind of things that, you know, the obstacles we had, and we said that uh, uh, K through 12 was something that's kind of new for us, even though I want you to know that AI National actually did it in the 80s, and so that's what happens sometimes in all chapters and so forth. Sometimes you have a program and then it disappears with someone else left. And so we're actually bringing, bringing that back. But the important thing I want you to remember leaving here today is that this first one's called uh, Instructional Guides. It's not a curriculum. It's, right. it's actually a design thinking guide. It's actually helping teachers understand how design thinking and practice can help kids learn about math and science and also potentially engage them in architecture. Uh, the other thing is important is, as you know, in a nonprofit, Association management, we have li what limited resources. So we have lots of ideas. We have actually unlimited ideas sometimes, I think, but uh, we have lots of ideas, but we have limited resources. So we wanted to make sure we pick some items that actually could make a difference in K through 12, and, and engagement with students is one of them, which a lot of our components and chapters do very well. But we don't engage with teachers. So what we're going to start doing is going to teachers' conferences. Right. and holding sessions there to help teachers learn about how to teach architecture. And that way, when the architects move on, the teachers still know how to do it. So we think that's going to be more impactful in the future. And one thing I didn't mention, on our website, we do have a K-12 article, which is attached to the article you can download. It's a K-12 scan. Mm -hmm. And the scan is um, programs from components um, all over the country about their programs, when they run, where they are, that sort of thing. That's going to be improved upon with the new K-12 director, but you can go
go to our website and download that information if you want to know what's going on with other communities across the country. Any, anything, any questions? Well, we'll, we'll have it and we'll have more okay. questions. Um, in fact, uh, in fact, we have, I think there's over 50 programs in the United States from chapters. Uh, we, we don't know the downloads, but we have, we've had over 2,000 hits on that site in about a week. So, and we got 38 hits, uh, 38 likes in, in LinkedIn in a couple of days. So a lot of people are downloading that right now and trying to understand um, the breadth of what architects and, and chapters are really doing an enormous job out there on K-12. It's just no one else knows what everyone else is doing. And so we wanted to solve that problem. Okay, so I'll try to speed up a little bit here. Uh, the next part is just looking at the data. And essentially, I want to start with the pipeline. So this is actually college, so I tried to put the little college logo in there. Uh, essentially, uh, the important thing here is that, uh, like the United States, uh, destined by 2050, uh, minorities will become the majority of America. So you can actually see it happening here already, is that this, this set here is actually becoming larger at the school side. So it's already happening in the schools. And uh, it actually is uh, an indicator of kind of the future, of, uh, particularly, particularly in terms of our profession. Uh, next one is actually school enrollment for gender. And essentially right now, there's, it's actually about 47% women. So that's amazing because right now you see later that women only make up 20% of the profession or 20% of AI's membership. But essentially what's happening now is they're almost half uh, of the population in schools. This will tell you what the trend is going to be. In, in fact, that women are going to be a higher percentage of our profession, almost basically because of this fact right here. Um, I'll try to explain that a little bit more if I can. Um, but essentially right now, uh, women make up 20% of our membership. Now, what I want you to do is not fret over that. So you got to understand this one fact. My wife doesn't mind if I bring her up every once in a while because she's an architect. And she's about my age. I have a little gray hair, so you can imagine that part of it. Uh, so you got to remember when my wife was an architect and she started in the 80s, um, there were only 3% of the architects were women. But the issue is they're still working. So as they begin to retire, that 47% I talked about before, the number's going to start going up faster and faster. So it average about a half percent per year every year until about 2045, and then we'll be about 37%. So that doesn't mean our work is done or that we need to relax, but it means that we've got the numbers behind it, the young people that are coming. Uh, and in fact, uh, we at the AI National recognize that women are the fastest growing segment of our membership. And it's really, really important. That's why you see so much backing for women's leadership, and we're actually going to think about having more of a women's department and some other things that we're talking about right now. That's a great question. See, what happens is that no one started counting. <laughs> uh, that number's from NAB, but their, their numbers only go back, I think, to 2003. Uh, we, we just found out a funny story. I, I could actually, we did a research to find out every woman member basically went back about 1880-something. So, but there's this one period in the 70s where there was a fire. <laughs> 
end of that one. You know. So there's a, you know, there was what happened like 1977 to this number, and the issue is because the records are lost. So there, you know, what happened is there's, an, I don't want to belabor the point, but it's about everyone's attention. See, when it, it has our attention now, in about 2004 or five, and it's consistent from that year to now. And the real issue is to keep it going, keep counting. And that, I'll talk about counting as being an important issue. And don't let that sort of uh, activity fade away because we need to know what the numbers are consistently. And then, again, so here's the, the good news, as I said. Remember, there's 47% women in schools. But according to, to both of these indicators here, one from NCARB on the left and one from AIA's associate uh, elevations, 36% of, of the uh, licensed uh, people who take the exam and pass are women. So that tells you right now that if everyone else older than 25 retired, it would be 36%. That's kind of what it is. We also know it's true because we can tell at the AIA that uh, when someone elevates their membership from associate to full member, 37% of them are women. So that means that we're really starting to ramp up here and things are, are going in the right direction. Um, and then finally, um, we have some ethnicity uh, information. And this is the numbers that generally we pay attention to a lot. Uh, the significant one is African Americans is only 2%. Uh, there are about 100 and, you know, you can look at the number 110, 112,000 architects in this country. And there's about 2,000 African Americans. But you can imagine that if I want to change that number from 2,000 to 4,000, I have to double the number of African American architects. We can imagine what a task that would be to do that. But mainly the issue is um, there are only 5% of the population in university. So I have to increase the university population in order to get them to a high enough number of their national representation in the U.S. Census, which is about 12%. So we think 10% is the target, and uh, you can, I'll talk about some of the things we do to try to address uh, pinch points, as they're using Rosa Shang's term, pinch points that uh, reflect different things for different groups. I'll just pause there for a second, any questions on numbers, but I can definitely answer them at the end. I have a question. Sure. So, um, uh, AIA has about 60,000 architects in its 90,000 membership. There's associates, there's an ally, there's international, there's a lot of other folks. And, uh, you know, NCAR reports about 110,000. Uh, county ethnicity in our profession is really difficult because uh, many, much of it has been reported by state boards of, of architects, and there's 54 of those boards. <laughs> And each of them are governed by state laws or legislation, and they all have different terms about releasing information like that. So at this point, until one day the NCARB and AI actually maybe share those numbers and push them together somehow, it's very difficult to get an absolute term. Uh, I always say my, my statistician who works in my office who helps me, including the person who does our um, business index, uh, the gentleman from Harvard who does that for us helps me, he calls me, and, with these numbers, and he says that uh, essentially um, there'll be a, there will be a time when uh, those numbers will will be able to merge them in some in some way, but it just it just isn't happening right now. 
he also tells me that 60,000 out of 100,000 is a 60% sample. And in, instead, in Statistics 101, you only need a 5% sample to be really close. But we're way over that, so we're, our numbers are as good as the public numbers for practical purposes, and to be more scientific about it, with plus or minus 3%. <laughs> yeah, that's the way they, that's how they talk. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm pretty confident. People ask me that question all the, all the time. <clears throat> Anybody else? So I don't know that number offhand, but if you if you download on our website diversity inclusion, we still have our diversity uh, survey is still online that was published in January 2016. And I believe there's a question in there we asked them like, did you ever meet an architect? What age did you meet them? So there's a there's a number in there. Um, there that has a lot to do with our pipeline activity. You know, where should we? Should the third graders? You know, is it? high school, but if you look at what National Science Foundation is doing in terms of STEM, it's the 10-year-old. That's, that's what we're seeing, and we're actually trying to follow them a little bit because that's when they feel that young people are starting to form this whole notion of self that reflects what their future might be, and they might say something like, I want to be something, and before that it's more, it's different. And then after that, if you wait till high school, we, we actually don't focus on high school at all because we think their mind is already made up by then. Um, so. And plus, you have to remember the different ethnicities. So, you know, I always say you can't be what you can't see. So, you have to make sure that you get into, you know, in front of them at an early age so they understand architecture or what the architect does. Um, I know um, one thing that I, I, I think about is, you know, how architects can help in your community. Um, that's some of the younger kids, that's what they, what, you know, they seem to um, drive, you know, to that. They want to change this, they want to change that in their community. So it's, it's different for, you know, different. <laughs> yeah, but I, I could say that what we're trying to do is follow the data. We're trying to be more data driven. And we think that with the National Science Foundation's kind of information about math and that kind of thing, we're, we're trying to follow, follow that right now until we get something better. Keep in mind that uh, in design thinking, education, and just like in your program here for uh, architecture, discovery architecture, um, you put 20 young people in the room, you're not going to get 20 architects. You're going to get three of them, two of them you're going to identify, and they were already destined to be architects. There's nothing that would ever stop them. And I actually, one of those people, like six years old, it was all over, just totally afflicted. Just, it was all over for me. Uh, but uh, you're going to get two more people who never saw architecture in their whole life and who, who will just totally be in life. And that's the success. That's the best success. The other 16 people, <laughs> the other 16 people, are going to be our clients, they're going to be people in society who appreciate architecture, who, who will know architecture and be our allies and supporters and, and that kind of thing, and that's why we think that's really important. <laughs> All right, so 2015, really quickly, 2015, Rosa Shang introduced equity in architecture 
15-1 resolution passed by 4,000 to 100 or something like ridiculous majority. And uh, from that, that uh, from that event, uh, they were able to form a commission. And the commission is about 15 people from all over the country, including some social scientists, not just all architects. There was a, there was a neuroscientist on our crew. There was a banker. Uh, there was a very interesting group of people. Uh, so it wasn't just architects talking to architects. It was a mix, and we think that was really successful. So first thing they did is came up with a new diversity statement, and I'll, I'll just let you read that. But essentially, it's more inspirational, and it tries to tell us uh, that uh, the work we do has an impact on the world, our communities, and that's why we think EDI is important, because this essentially reflects you know, the side of society we live in. Uh, so uh, that was the first thing that they came up with. But essentially it's a blue ribbon panel, as I, met, as I mentioned, and then we want to be an action-oriented group, not an aspirational think tank. I think I've talked to some of you here about how I felt about that. But uh, we're not a think tank, we're not a, you know, we, we're actually, what are we going to do? So we developed a set of priorities, and they're based on these five keystone areas. So for example, leadership, culture, architecture excellence, education and career development, in marketing awareness, awareness. So we tried to balance everything we did around those buckets. Uh, there were originally 32 recommendations, and as we all know, as we're all facilitators in our lives as architects and planners and etc. What happens a lot of time when you come up with 32 recommendations, the whole thing can really go nowhere because you don't know what to do with that. So we we actually put it through a. Uh, impact analysis and essentially what that does is that it it causes you to weigh the difficulty versus the impact so if it's really difficult and expensive and it has low impact you just park it somewhere else but if you know what had high impact and it's not too difficult to do it has it goes into the, let's do it now so we had 11 in the end so based on those 11 recommendations they fall into these four questions and this was actually constructed by Emily Grandstaff uh, so she's actually really good at kind of taking lots of stuff and bringing it into um, a, a bite-sized one of the bites out of the whale. I keep, I have to keep saying that. Uh, and uh, how does the AI national create a culture of uh, champions, equity, diversity, and inclusion? And the first two recommendations do that. So the, the thing we would like to talk about here, uh, and I want to preface this by saying that the recommendations you see here, you can use and interpret in your own environment, whether it's your firm, or your chapter, or some other kind of community group, or this group. So one of these days we'll have recommendations for chapters, recommendations for SGM, recommendations for a knowledge community, but right now we just have this one, so we'll just try to say that you can interpret them in the ways you think that are useful. But essentially what it means is that Diversity and inclusion, equity, diversity, inclusion, conversations and activities can't be people talking to each other who believe in the same thing. So, so your board has to be on it, on it. Your subcommittees have to be talking about it. Is EDI part of the conversation when they make a decision? Do you have the right jury? Do you have the right members? You know, it's everything it has to permeate everywhere throughout your organization for it to be effective. And that's a suggestion by the Society of Mechanical Engineers. The, we met with them, and they told us what was successful. 
And they said, if you don't do this, it doesn't go very far, because you're just talking to each other. That's why they say it's important. Uh, the other one is you have to measure and report uh, how EDA, EDI works, so we try to be more data-oriented. We're putting together a uh, demographic document right now that the board will see every year. They'll know exactly where ethnicity and gender demographics are every year, and, and they'll be able to compare year to year and see what our progress is, has been. So that's really um, important. The next question is, how can the AI help its members create a culture that champions uh, equity and inclusion? In other words, how do members interface into these ideals? Recommendations three, four, and six. The first thing we did is launch training, as MJ mentioned earlier. Uh, I want to give credit to Miguel Del Rio, who's actually Puerto Rican architect right now, we have not been able to contact. We know he's alive, but but uh, he actually came up with this idea. He was the chairman of the Diversity Council on 2014, and uh, he said that um, we need to spend the money for that year on training because it, it, we had never really done it in AI National at all, and um, it was really a lightning experience. So we tried to put it everywhere. Like I said, the staff, the board, the Strategic Council, we went to uh, KLA, yeah. uh, we went to um, uh, CASE, everywhere we can we can do it. Uh, grassroots, we did it in grassroots twice already, so we're taking it everywhere we can. The other one is uh, create guys for equitable, pro uh, equitable practice. This is a big one. So, anybody familiar with the parlor guides from Australia? Oh, no one, good. Okay, so. <laughs> Uh, so in Australia, uh, this, you can look it up. It's P-A-R-L-O-U-R, uh, very British spelling. Uh, essentially, what it is is a guidelines for practice. So in other words, the firms in Australia didn't know how to have an equitable, equitable practice inside their firms. So it covers things like pay equity, work-life balance, negotiation, uh, EDI training, Working in your community, actually we added a chapter for ours called Community Engagement is actually essential for firms to participate in EDI. Uh, but we're working on that, three chapters. We hope to have the first three chapters done by convention next year. I hope, <laughs> please. So, uh, but Rosa is, is leading that, Rosa and Emily are leading that charge right now. And uh, it's a huge project. And we're actually about to bring a university on our team to be our uh, peer review of vetting agency and also help us with writing. So it's a huge, huge project. So uh, look for, for that uh, coming soon. Uh, the other one is develop a self-assessment tool. So uh, some of the experts we've talked to, social scientists that we've been kind of rubbing elbows with them to try to get a different perspective. And uh, they talk about cognitive dissonance and how you figure out how to get people to try to do something without like telling them to do it or embarrassing them. So what they come up with this ideal of a self-assessment is where you go in and checkbox your firm and see if you've done the 12 things that really are conducive to an equitable practice. You become anonymous and you compare yourself with 25 other firms and then you see where you are on the line. And then when you see you're way over here, that means you have a lot of work to do. And if you're way over here, you're really leading the industry. And you can start advertising that. You can say, you know, we're doing all these things, which means we're a great place to work. 
And uh, when we were in New York doing this conversation, as I said, some of the younger people like to come to me later and ask me a question because they don't want to say it in front of everyone. And she said that uh, my boss doesn't think EDAC's a good idea. And I said, she said, what should I tell him? And I said, if he wants to keep you, he should do it. He said, because you want to hire great people like you. That's what you tell him. And she said, that's right, I should tell him that. So uh, anyway, uh, how can the AI be a thought leader in equity, diversity, and inclusion in five and seven address this one? Uh, so one of the things we're going to do, if anybody ever heard the Boyer Report before, it's an educational document. It's a report that was written about uh, 20 years ago, and it was basically architecture role in education and how the practice of architecture and the education of architecture were kind of like in two different places or something. That's not happening now. But, um, you know, and the report actually talked about it in a very academic way. It did all this research and it made these recommendations. So we're going to actually do a paper of similar breadth, and uh, we expect to start that at the end of, end of next year. So we're going to do an RFP, actually, for a university to come participate in. <clears throat> the other one is uh, for later on, 2018-19, is to try to understand what's the relationship between design excellence or architecture excellence and diversity. That's the simple way of saying it. If you want to read more about it, there's a book called The Difference by Scott Page, who's a social, sociology professor at the University of Michigan. And they have done a lot of studies that just simply say this, that when you look at all the uh, scientific papers, the ones that have the most diverse groups are actually the most powerful. So if it's actually, I'm not going to say there's any type of person, but the same type of people with the same background and the same they tend to be slightly less dynamic and uh, are graded slightly lower. So we're going to actually start to measure it. We don't know the conclusion of this issue. We're going to start to measure it and see uh, what the impact is on diversity and design excellence. So this is just sort of a research project that we intend to do. And finally, how can the AIA develop future talent in equity, diversity, and inclusion? Uh, one is to advocate for accessible paths. So some of that is to educa education. Some of that is scholarships. We're giving 16 scholarships next year, which is a really big deal. Um, and uh, there's some talk about how do we get community college connected to university. And because what we're finding is that community college architecture programs, which there are a lot of them, have more minorities and women in them than the general universities do. So if we could connect more of them through either more articulation agreements or just more conversation to figure out how we can make that work. We can use the, those folks to, to help uh, move architecture forward. Uh, and then we talked about K through 12 and I told uh, our, our director is Del Ruff and I told him that his job seemed so much fun that I was wondering if he would trade with me. Because <laughs> you know, you know, what he's doing is just amazing. He's, He's actually a former uh, superintendent and biology teacher, so he really knows how to teach kids and uh, how to get things across. I'll just give you an example of one of the things he told me the other day, is that, uh, that maybe architects may not know this, but if you talk to a second grader and you say the word scale, they don't really know what that is. But if you use the word size, then they get that. So he was saying that we have to be careful He's trying to get us to understand education pedagogy, which isn't really our domain, but he's trying to
put together information to help architects be better at teaching architecture based on age appropriateness and a bunch of other criteria that's really important. Oh, one more. So how can the AI better communicate? This is, this is a really important one. It's the easiest one. Sometimes we think about this one as the low-hanging fruit. So MJ, myself, and Cedric Rush actually gone out and photographed firms in reality. So we're trying to do two things. Number one is we don't want to use stock photography on our website of architecture. So you can go to uh, Getty Image and get a picture of two architects. And um, actually, we get people calling us and say it's fake. So they actually know it because the architects know the difference between real architects and not real architects. <laughs> so uh, we actually went and did a photo shoot, shoot in DC. And we went to several firms of different sizes. And they have minority participation in women. And we showed actually what was really going on. And we're starting to use those pictures. Uh, and then MJ and I are going to try to save some money next year and kind of go to a couple of cities around the country to do some more. Because we want, this is the whole thing that MJ was talking about. You can't be what you can't see. When you come to our website, I can't express this enough. When you come to our website, it should look like, you know, kind of, well, you know, there's, well, you know, there's a couple of women there. I mean, it looks pretty important. So... And uh, currently, you, you, if you look at our website now, it's getting there. I'm not saying it's not, but maybe about five years ago, kind of not so much. Uh, so um, that's really important. Uh, this one also has to do with something else you can do is tell, your, tell our stories. So if you have a great story, and this, this includes you might have a great story in your community about EDI, you can give it to us, and we'll put it in the national one. And I try to say that everywhere I go because... They're just waiting for those stories. Uh, we met uh, a wonderful family at convention in Florida where the father, they're both Hispanic, Cuban descent, and the father and the daughter went to college together. And they graduated together. So that's a great, st that's a great story. So that's the kind of stuff that, if you hear any of this stuff, we might publish it in your newsletter or something like that, but if it's really amazing, Try to get it to us somehow, and we'll try to get these stories. So again, people start to see that and, and understand that AI is actually really, it, it is diverse in a lot of ways. It's just we just don't feature it enough, and it seems to be the problem. Okay. Um, I'm talking about all three of these simultaneously, but ensure the publications reflect EDI. Um, the photography is really what I was getting at, making sure the photography is part. This is Boston's BSA site. And uh, this is, you know, hopefully, it's a balancing act. Don't ask me really the science of how much of each person know it, because I'm not really good at that. But the reality, you'll know it, and your memberships will react to it. Uh, and I think it's important to just give it a try, you know, just get those images out there. I'm not, I'm not really sure, I'm sure you all are doing it now, but uh, it's just something that we tell everybody uh, that give it, give it the best effort you can. Okay, so. That's it for a presentation. These are our contacts. Marsha Calloway is your main contact for diversity and inclusion. If you have any questions, uh, you can email her. And Jeffrey is uh, the manager assistant. Uh, he's, the, he's also our, our go-getter who does a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I spelled it wrong. Jeffrey was the, that wasn't very EDI of me. Um, so I can use that. So uh, any, any questions?
connected with some other first graders and second graders who love to draw, and I started sitting with them, and that had a big role. There's three, three events in my life, and then the other one, I had a babysitter who was a commercial artist. And if you remember back in the day when you used to get TV guides, and in the back would be uh, architectural housing plans, <laughs> and then there would be all these amazing illustrations of houses and the plans. She actually drew the, the perspective houses, and she would come to babysit for me, and she'd draw all those. And she was drawing things like leaves on trees, which I had never seen anyone do that, and I got really hooked on that one. And the third one was when I was 10, University of Detroit Mercy, was, was the name of the university now, it used to be called University of Detroit, actually did like discovery architecture, and they had community art classes in the summer. And my father thought I was really bored, so he sent me <laughs> over there. The unfortunate thing is that the art class was in the architecture building, and uh, I was uh, uh, delinquent in the class because I was upstairs in the loft playing with the models that the architecture students had left behind. <laughs> and so I was in there like taking them apart, and, and, and I came home and I told my father, I'm definitely going to be an architect, and he said, I thought you were learning how to make rocks. <laughs> Yeah. All right, thanks. Oh, one more. I have a question. Uh, do you have any information also on people, especially women that leave the profession at one point, and why, and why are we, what should we do to keep them in the profession? Yeah, so you can look at Rose's uh, Equity by Design report, and also our diversity report, actually, if you read both of them. It's a horrible amount of just reading. <laughs> but uh, she asked a lot of questions for that. It's a very difficult thing to put our finger on because women for different reasons. Uh, and we can't measure it while we're also growing at the same time. In other words, the young women in the profession are accelerating quickly and they're getting, as you, I saw today in USA Today report, that we're 98% employed. Architects are 98% employed right now, full employment. So it's hard to say, and no one's leaving right now, so you can't get a look at that too. Uh, but mostly what we hear in those reports are uh, family, just, you know, things that happen that aren't great, like not getting promoted or some things like that. But mostly, we find it's family. Rosa will tell you pretty much that's part of it. And I think one of the things she wants to do, uh, or to emphasize really, is to think about how do we back ramp it, people, and like you leave, or it could be men too. So you leave the profession, how do you in-ramp people back in the profession when they, when they want to do it? You know, Elizabeth Rector was our president. And that's all she talked about the whole year, if you remember that. She talked about how she took 20 years off, and then she rejoined her husband, her husband put the firm back together, and she just took off with this new firm and did it, does still today incredible work in China and all these other places. So I think that's the conversation we want to have on that end of it, and there's a few other reasons, but I think it's mostly life choices, things like that. Okay, thank you very much. part of the evening and um, this has really kind of come out of um, where it's as Dan was talking about the um, AI National the equity, uh, equity Commission is working on a toolkit because a lot of times we've been asked one of the biggest questions we're asked is I want to improve I want to improve my firm you know it, it, by principles and you know they really do care about improving equity and equitable practice in their firms but they don't know how they don't know how to do it, they don't know the metrics like Damon was talking about, 
how do you get that, how do you gain those, those uh, comparisons between firms? How do you know if you're being equitable? Um, and so one of the things that we're trying to do in conjunction with, um, with Rosa and the Equity and Architecture Commission is create a toolkit that actually helps firms understand what, what it is that they can do. And so uh, tonight we've invited three great uh, women here to join us who are experts in um, workplace um, diversity and um, basic, um, basic work, workplace, um, I guess, metrics and um, culture. So we're really kind of starting to use this, use these events to help build um, some of the data for our, what we're calling our equity toolkit. And so really trying to start tonight focusing on like the first steps of the professional journey, we're talking about recruitment, hiring, and uh, retention. And so I want to introduce our panelists, starting first of all with Candace Wood Jackson. She is an attorney specializing in labor and employment um, at Austin and Bird. And Austin and Bird is one of the world's premier law firms headquartered in Atlanta. And she's also currently running for the District 7 position for the Atlanta Public School Board. And <laughs> um, Tracy Scott, she's joining us from Emory University. She's a senior lecturer in the Department of Sociology. One area of her research focuses on how gender and culture interact in the workplace. She's also the director of Emory's Quality Enhancement Plan and serves on Emory's Affirmative Action Committee. And then finally, we have Michelle Messina, who is the Regional Director of Human Resources at Gensler Chicago. Um, Gensler, I, I guess this is the sixth year in a row, they are um, very good at ranking as the number one firm for revenue. And so they, they are generally very good at cultural practices and also the business side of things. Um, Michelle has been an active participant in Gensler's new firm-wide initiative for diversity also. So she's got a lot to say on that. And tonight our discussion will be moderated by Equity and Architecture's own Ann Rogers. And she's an architectural designer and medical planner at Perkins & Will. And she was recently invited to be the Atlanta Office of Diversity Champion. And that requires her to report to their Corporate Diversity Council, which um, is also related to initiatives for Perkins & Will and diversity inclusion. So, Please help me welcome them and thank you guys for being here. Gender dynamics in the workplace. 
Can you please talk about how the division of labor, both domestic and paid, has evolved over time in the U.S.? How things like the Industrial Revolution and World War II. Sorry, How things like the Industrial Revolution, World War II, and this cultural construct of the ideal worker affected our current gender breakdown in the workplace? <laughs> Don't worry. Um, yeah, this sounds huge, and it is huge. I teach a whole course on culture, and I'm not going to do that now in five minutes. Um, but what I think Anne and, and others, and, and Michael, wanted was a little bit of the, the context, right, and the cultural um, norms and expectations that lie behind some of these gendered practices at work. So my specialty is gender, and so I'm going to talk about that aspect of it briefly. Um, a lot of this is also lies behind the whole notion of unconscious bias. Where does that come from? It comes from culture. And specifically in the US and in Western Europe, our whole nature of work is gendered. So you get entire occupations that are gendered. And all of this stems originally from the Industrial Revolution, when work became, the nature of work became completely different than what it had been before. Before the Industrial Revolution, people worked in small communities, oftentimes in families. So the family unit was oftentimes also the economic unit. And what happens with the Industrial Revolution is that work and home get separated. So we have this complete split between work and home. When you work, you go outside the home to a place that's not your home and you're paid. So you also get this split between paid, paid labor is the labor that happens in, in the workplace, and the home gets separated out. And what happens over time is that those two spheres become identified with gender. So you get this ideology of separate spheres that many historians write about, so that home becomes the domain of women and work becomes the domain of men. Um, so you get this, this whole notion the notion of the good provider and the homemaker, right? And so those notions are what underlie still our current work structure. It's why we have occupations that are gendered. So what, what tended to happen over time is, is work that was more feminine, feminine characteristics like in the home, caring professions, teachers, nurses, those type, sorts of occupations are still heavily female. Almost 95% of nurses are still women. And then you get the, the occupations that are more stereotypically masculine have the men in them. Um, and architecture was one of those for a long time. You're, and I studied lots of different occupations, but architecture is moving in the same direction that things like medicine and law are, um, where in graduate school you're getting more even numbers of women, but it takes a while for that, sh that to shift in terms of the percentages of the practitioners. Um, but, but the other thing that, that Anne mentioned that I want to talk briefly about is this notion of the ideal worker. This was the thing that also came out of the split, was that the ideal worker is someone who prioritizes work over everything else. So again, this kind of fits with the masculine stereotype of a man going out to the workplace, and the man's identity is work, and his, you know, he prioritizes work time, you, so availability is for the workplace, that's his priority, because supposedly the wife, and again, this is 
dominant middle class culture. This isn't what actually happens in reality. But it's the dominant cultural norm that tends to be spread by media and people with power. And it ends up um, uh, becoming solidified in, in, in practice among middle classes. So the ideal worker is very this masculinized norm where you're at work, you don't get distracted by anything else, you're supposed to devote your entire um, time and, and availability and everything else to the good of the employer, your identity comes from your work. That's very much the masculine stereotype. So what tends to happen, even today, this is still the norm. So what tends to happen is if you're a worker who actually has responsibilities at home still, um, male or female, but this tends to happen much more with women, you're responsible for the kids, or you're responsible for figuring out how the kids get taken care of, and those things interfere with your work time, you're seen as less dedicated, you're not the ideal worker, you aren't as available time-wise, you may leave work early, and that stuff underlies a lot of unconscious bias that ends up leading to women not getting promotions, not being seen as workers who are as good as the men, and all sorts of things that happen interactionally at work, informal interactions as well. Um, so this is problematic. It's still really problematic. And there are, your team, and I have to say, Damon and MJ, you guys do amazing work. I just want the stuff that you presented, this is, you know, there's loads of research at many universities going on about this, but you all have really done amazing things in your industry. Um, so a lot of the stuff I look at is more informal interactions at work and not necessarily the formal policies and things that are in place. Um, but there are some very interesting new studies that are starting to look at can we change what the norms are about a good worker. So what has tended to happen now is when you get a workplace and the norms of a good worker have to do with visibility. Are you there? Are you in the workplace? Can they see you, right? If you work at home, eh, maybe they're not so dedicated. Um, availability, are you always available for the employer because that's what an ideal worker is. Um, and that devotion thing. So what tends to happen is it, work becomes about your hours. It becomes about are you in the workplace? and it becomes about your attitude and dedication, rather than the work product itself, rather than how you actually interact with the coworkers. And there's been very interesting work done by Leslie Curlow, who's at Harvard Business School, um, and Erin Kelly, who's a sociologist, she was a colleague of mine in graduate school, and she's at the University of Minnesota. And they both did some um, very interesting projects in different different industries doing a work redesign model where they're trying to challenge the norms at work and trying to get people to figure out workplace um, teamwork and peer groups that value work product itself and value the relationships among the team members and try to get the focus off of things like what time did you come into work? Are you always available? Um, and they've written a, a a paper about this, and I won't go into the specifics, but it's really interesting, and I think it behooves all of us to try and think a bit deeper. And how can we how can we challenge those norms, and how can we, you know, try to figure out ways to get past this notion that has become very gendered, um, and it ends up 
hurting women and hurting men who also prioritize work, you know, their work-life balance. Yeah. All right, so that was. That's really <laughs> very interesting. I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, one quick one before we kind of move along with the history of five. You said that uh, certain professions have always been gendered, um, but I thought I read somewhere that teaching and healthcare jobs were traditionally start, um, male dominated, and then somewhere along the line they became female dominated. And I've heard that men are now kind of leaving finance and moving into tech, and that the theory was men kind of tend to follow the money more. Do you think that's yeah, true? Sure. I don't, I don't know about teaching as much okay. as healthcare, but okay. some of this depended on when when professions uh, changed. Mm -hmm. So healthcare, you know, there the whole physician profession mm -hmm. professionalized in the 1900s, and after that, nursing mm -hmm. kind of broke off from that. And nursing's always been heavily female; mm -hmm. it's never okay. been male. Okay. All right. So, okay. um, yeah. Now, now doctors are starting to become more female. Uh, yeah, med kids. school is 50 percent. Okay. Yeah. Yes. The, the, it, yes. Well, and part of this, the other part I didn't mention is, we tend as a culture, when you've got masculine norms and feminine norms, we value the masculine side and not the feminine. So it's okay for women to go into masculine things. It is not okay so for men to go into feminine occupations, and this is still hugely problematic. There was a really interesting article in the New York Times recently about the Girl Scouts. Um, I don't know if anyone saw this, but the girl uh, and the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts have now decided they're going to let girls into the Boy Scouts. The Girl Scouts are not letting boys into the Girl Scouts, but boys don't want to go into the Girl Scouts. Um, but this article is about the badges that you earn as a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout and how stereotypically masculine and feminine they still are. And what it actually, this is a great article that you all may want to look at because what, what Claire Payne Miller is a writer for the New York Times who's really terrific about gender issues. She cites a lot of social science research. Um, and this article talks about how some of the feminine characteristics, if men actually did those badges, they would actually be better at work. Um, because even though we have these norms about work, a lot of research has shown that men who can exhibit both feminine and masculine characteristics at the appropriate times do better. Just like women do better as well. So you can't just always be powerful and aggressive. Mm -hmm. You also need to be able to learn how to listen and that kind of stuff. So, you know, so again, it's these, mm -hmm. um, but we devalue the feminine and we, we value the masculine. Mm -hmm. So you're, this is the problem with gender segregation mm -hmm. in occupations. Mm -hmm. We are not having the men move into nursing. It's also a huge problem with working class people who've been laid off from manufacturing jobs. The women will go get retrained as nurses, the men won't, and they can't find work. Oh, yeah. Because of the, the stigma and stereotypes. Michelle and Candace, how have you seen the human resources profession and the employment law professions evolve during your times there? Speak to that. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that Tracy is talking about that because HR has been, you know, traditionally right. Really interesting as you were talking about that because you think about HR where it was kind of the nurturing the people and that you do that um, and so I mean I, I would say that it's kind of the opposite in architecture where it has traditionally been female I think there's probably a better mix but it's still 
the majority is female. I mean, it's very rare to see, well, not very rare, but it's definitely you know, imbalanced mm -hmm. the other way, mm -hmm. um, which I think is exactly to what you're saying. Yes, and it's interesting is that the shift um, you know, that's happened probably over the last 20 years with an HR of, you know, focused on people, and, you know, I kind of joke saying, you know, someone that I'm interviewing for an HR job says, you know, I ask them, well, why do you want to be in HR? And they say, I like to work with people. I'm like, you have no idea what HR is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually really starting to look, because I mean, what job doesn't work with people? Right. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's really kind of shifted towards being more business partner and being mm -hmm. much more business oriented through the lens of people. Mm -hmm. So I think that's through that shift, you're starting to see a little bit of more balance, but still on the other side of yeah, yeah it's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm an employment lawyer, litigator, so I defend corporations um, in employment litigations and usually my point of contact at my client at my corporations is HR. And I would agree with um, what you just said about it's usually women that I'm speaking to, but the dichotomy of this idea that HR is soft and fluffy and about people to the reality of the legal issues that I'm in the complex nature of what I'm talking about could not be more stark. Uh, and actually the HR profession uh, might as well be lawyers with what the kind of employment law nastiness that happens. Um, if you like, if you like warm and fuzzy and happy and good and like girly things, don't go into HR because we don't deal with any of that. Um, obviously, that's a broad generalization, but I've certainly seen. And as our laws become more complex, as society becomes more complex, that issue is going to continue to become more. HR itself is going to become more of a complex dynamic profession, uh, not that it not already is, it is, but uh, will continue to be uh, exactly what you just said, it is a partner, it's a C-suite level uh, of that criticalness at any corporation, and any corporation that doesn't treat it that way um, can, should come talk to me because you're probably going to be my next client because you're going to get sued. Uh, I mean, you know, if you have a strong HR department, you're not talking, to, when I'm there, it's not a good sign, right? Um, and so, and that usually happens when somebody in HR is not up to par, and, and that's why it really is, um, it's, it's actually a very interesting profession, maybe we, we could talk about why there's that stigma about HR when the reality, at least from my employment law perspective, is quite different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of warm and fuzzy, uh, benefits are mentioned, you know, speaking of HR, that may be one side to HR that is a little more warm and fuzzy, the kind of bringing people in that you want to make the organization stronger. So benefits are often mentioned as a way to kind of solve diversity and inclusion. You entice and retain people with good childcare, good parental leave, and flex time policies. Michelle and Casey, and if you want to jump in, what is the relative importance of benefits in the overall um, effort of a firm to promote diversity and inclusion? Do you think it's a silver bullet? Do you think it's a tiny piece, inconsequential compared to, say, salary? How important are benefits? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's certainly not a silver bullet. I mean, I think, I, I think if I think about, you know, why people leave our firm, um, the number one reason is um, career enhancement or lack of career growth. It's not because of benefits. I mean, benefits to me, I think, um, you know, there's certainly, it's the foundational things. And, you know, there can be the perks that you talk about, you know, free childcare. Three months, you know, the 
maternity leave and those types of things. And I think those are certainly perks. Mm -hmm. But I think what really, uh, what I've seen is that um, you, you can have solid benefits that may be or may not be, you know, they're competitive, but they may not be off the scales mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But I think if you have an environment where people feel really um, supported, that they can go, they can grow, and they can really, you know, um, develop how they want to develop, that's what's really going to attract and retain talent, frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, compensation, of course, is, is important. But at the end of the day, like I said, that's the one reason why people leave our firm is not because of all those tangible benefits, mm -hmm. but it's really the intangibles and the environment that you know we create, and that includes the inclusion or the inclusivity, you know, and that where pe people feel that they really have a community that supports them and that allows them to bring their talents and their passions and their their strengths and diverse thoughts, and it's valued and it helps them grow and you know overall they. What really is is the sweet, you know, the, the secret sauce, if you will. Potential so, for growth. Yeah, 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 I think so. Yeah, and I also study organizational culture, yeah. and this is exactly what the, that research shows: is that it's the small group yeah. work culture that matters mm -hmm. the most to employees. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's lots of talk about culture change, but what sociologists of culture have found is that in in an organization, the culture that matters most to people is their what, what's called a small group work culture. The, the people that they work with face-to-face um, -face on the team every day. So you can have a large overall corporate culture, which is important, but that's not the culture that matters as much to people in their everyday work life. It's that small group culture, and sometimes that will fit with the larger culture, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and oftentimes that, if that becomes toxic, that's oftentimes when people will leave. So, and there, I mean, this is really complex, but there have been a number of organizations that tried to figure out how to, how to have good small group work cultures. Google actually did a research study about this with their managers yeah. and used um, some ethnographers. They used the qualitative research that we do to try to figure this out. Um, it's tough, it's difficult to do, but that, that's the piece that you really have to address. Um, so some of the things that the, that the leadership can do is um, you, you need to be role models, right? You think of yourself as role models and try to create a structure that will bring up the work culture, you know, from the bottom up, this kind of work culture that values inclusivity and diversity and all of those things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, would, I would definitely echo that because, you know, our, the Chicago office is over 300 people. That's a lot, you know, and I mean, the firm is over 5,000. And yeah. so for someone to feel
I, I mean, that, that's exactly right. It's that yeah. benefits don't matter. Right. They don't. Um, and, and actually, I'll take it a step. They don't, they, don't, they don't matter. And I'll take it a step. I mean, they matter. Everybody needs health care. Do not. Candace for Jackson running for office. And she said, health care is great. I can talk about that another What I mean in this conversation is they don't matter but because they can actually go the opposite way. I have a client who said, we're going to do unlimited vacation for our employees. That's going to be amazing, right? No. What message does that send to their employees? We don't care about vacation so much. We want you to be here so much, it doesn't matter. The result of that unlimited vacation was people were less likely to take vacation. Because what message are you sending? You know, this is a firm culture where we're already overworked. Like, just give me 10 days so I know. You know, so that's what I mean by benefits don't matter. We had a same client said, we're gonna do paternity leave. Nobody went on paternity leave because there's a stigma about it, right? That's you don't have the culture, the benefits are, you know, uh, in fact, it could be even insulting. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I could see that being kind of a, um, a double-edged sword for a small firm, because a lot of architecture firms are small to mid-size, and that Google article, was it the one where it doesn't matter the extroversion or introversion of all the team members. It's just which teams let everyone stay or talk equally were the most yeah. successful. So yeah. whether they were high energy and friends outside of work, right. or they were strictly friends inside work only, as long as everyone felt like they could talk the same amount on the team, it was a success. Yes. Yes. So in these small, like sole practitioner firms or maybe firms with one designer and like a few employees, they yeah. kind of have to give up a bit of I don't know, control maybe? Or they have to be willing to take into account other people's um, opinions, do you, do you think? Sure, we have to be able to be willing to listen. The communication thing and being heard is huge. Um, and some of that is the kind of interactional dynamics of, of groups. Mm -hmm. So yes, they, they need to be able to figure out how to do that, but you can structure that some ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can structure so that everybody has a say. You know, mm -hmm. everyone takes a turn. and. You've got to have your leader make sure that not one person Definitely. talks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, yeah, there are a number of different yeah. ways to do this. Um, you know, meetings, right? Who loves meetings? Yeah. <laughs> Who loves meetings? Right? And talking in meetings. Um, I, I don't know if you, right? But the, and some of this with the gender stuff, I know you all heard about this. Women tend to speak less, but be, be perceived as speaking more than men. Um, and, oh, lots of research about this. Loads of research, and men tend to overestimate the amount of time that women speak, and they also tend to take credit for what women have said. Right? Um, and I don't know if any of you all heard about this strategy that Obama's staff, female staffers put into place in his second term. This is a fabulous strategy, and it's something that any of you could use. But the female staffers saw this pattern happen. So they got together and they came up with a strategy that they called amplification, where when they were in a meeting, if one of the women had a great idea, the other women, at least one of the other women, would immediately repeat that idea and give the woman credit, so that the, other, the men couldn't come up with it later or give credit for it. Yeah, wow. And actually, Obama noticed that, and then he started calling on the women to speak more. Oh, wow. These sorts of things can be really yeah. powerful. Yeah. So the communication and trying to you know, support each other when, you, when you're in a group that is underrepresented. So in terms of racial and ethnic diversity as well as gender, you, know, you can get together and do that with each other in meetings. It can help shift and it can help 
lot, yeah. <laughs> so is a firm decided they were... Oh, sure. Um, I completely understand that and agree that culture and, and feeling professional development is probably the reason people stay, but aren't there certain, maybe it's not benefits, but certain firm policies that help with that culture? For example, I think having flexible hours is very important sure. to feeling part of a culture, especially for somebody starting a family that needs to come in at 6 or 7 a.m. to work and leave at 3 and feel that that's acceptable and part of the culture. Um, are there any other I mean, I think that's a good one. I'd, I'd say, you know, working remotely as well. And I think um, what we've experienced, and I mean, frankly, we're, we're just experimenting with that because the, the nature of the work is it's highly collaborative where you need to be together. But frankly, you know, the, in this world that's, you know, hyper-connected, um, yeah, and, and there, are those, there, there, there are those needs for folks to have that flex, flexibility. So working remotely is something brought into the Chicago office as well. So yeah, there, there definitely are. It's a great point that there are some practices, whether it's a policy or just a practice, that really support um, you know, a, a, an inclusive and, and um, I, I mean, I don't know if it's diverse per se, but just the life needs, you know, providing that level of flexibility that people need. Yeah, there, those are, I would say, fairly easy. Um, but again, I think, like I said, with the working remotely, that's something that we're just testing because it does kind of shift how everyone has been typically working, that you have to be in the office because you have to collaborate around the collaboration table and all the materials and things like that. Well, you know, can we shift that and can we test that? And so, you know, that is kind of breaking or shifting some of those mindsets that have been really ingrained for a long time. Mm -hmm. And how are we making people see that? Mentioning that if you work from home, that's the best. Yeah, the so flex time in the office. Yeah, yeah. The research on flex time it, it is important. Oftentimes, it's important for right. certain employees, but it oftentimes doesn't help you get ahead. And you also often get stigmatized for being the person that, that takes the flex time or wants it. Yeah, I mean, have you seen ever? Yeah, they're yes. working from home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everybody's seen. I mean, but think about that. Like, yeah. Wait, well, what is that supposed to mean? Why are we putting in air quotes? <laughs> <laughs> but we know oh, she's working from home. Yeah, but there's already oh, a stigma about it. Yeah. yeah, and people check up on you. When I worked at a big corporation, I got to work at home one day. But we had this office administrator who would she email me at certain times to see if I'd reply on the email. Or what I'm doing. You know, she'd call me. You know, so checking up, make sure I'm really working at home. Um, and that's where it's difficult. It is difficult. This one, again, this one, the Leslie Perlow's um, model, she, this is, a, it's a fascinating model, and I can get you this, this article. She enacted this model with BCG Consulting in Boston, with a few of the work groups there. Senior leadership has now implemented this across like 4,000 offices, where the teams get together, and they decide kind of when, how they're going to get the work product done. And they take the emphasis off of hours and where you are, but they also talk about the personal time they need. And so the team decides how everybody's going to have a personal night off where nobody can bother them on their night off. And they decide on that as a team, and then they come together and check and make sure that people are feeling supported in their personal time off. 
It's not gendered, though. So the per they try to do it in a way that's not gendered, but that ends up helping everybody. It's a fascinating model, it's, and it, it's trying to shift the norms about work, um, which are tough to do, but it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. You know, and again, it's that team thing. Yeah. it still happens. I know it's the notion is that it's old-fashioned, but the, but the problem is... Because the bosses are from the yeah. older generation. <laughs> Not necessarily. You've got places like Google that give lip service to that, and it doesn't happen. Yeah. There, there's this notion that it's shifted, and it hasn't. This is the problem with a lot of the tech companies. But it's not so. the preferences of the younger generation. No, it isn't. It, well, it may not be, but what happens is the younger generation leaders are still doing this. And so the norms are still in place, and so you still get penalized if you don't do that. It's not that the workers themselves don't want that. It's, again, you've got the people at the top who are still enacting this stuff. And it's not, you know, it's millennials that are, that are doing this. Yeah. How, how hard do you think, or how much do you think that is because of, it's easy to tell if someone is at their desk from 9 to 5. It is hard, it's much harder to get the metrics about their productivity and what they're really accomplishing. It's hard to put, to like qualitate or quantitate that. I think, is there a lot to do, do with that, you think? Um, well, this is where, again, it depends on your industry and how you, but you've got to get together and figure out how do you measure that mm -hmm. as your, as a work team. Um, you know, the whole thing with Google is they make things, they make work supposedly like home because they don't have food places and the exercise you don't leave. You can sleep here. Yeah, so they don't have Yeah, yeah. so there, I mean, there's some interesting things coming out about that, that they're now trying to sort of, it's still this notion that your total devotion should be to work and you don't have a life outside of work. And if you do have a life outside of work, you get penalized. Yeah, I, you know, it's and it's complicated, but it's not that people don't want the work-life balance, it's that the workplace still wants to suck up all of your time. <laughs> 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 David. So Michelle, I wanted to ask, I thought you applied a moment ago, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. So in my past life, we did a lot of, I worked a lot on alternative work arrangements. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was gospel was the companies that engage in a formalized work at home program need to make really clear that working at home was not your solution for child care. And I thought a moment ago you might have suggested that that was something valuable to women was to work at home, and I wondered if that was what you meant, or if you all have policies that say if you work at home, it takes out to be somewhere else. So, it, it, yeah, that's a, that's a great question and clarifying point. So in, in our working remotely, and we actually said working remotely versus because you know, if someone wants to work at Starbucks all day, you knock yourself out. They'll might be able to stay. But, but I mean, one of the things, and what we tried to do in this pilot was not be so dictating or directive with a policy, but really more of treating all of our staff and team members. You are adults, and you are responsible. You know what you have to deliver at the end of the day to your clients or whatnot. 
And so guidelines around that. And so, and we actually tried to take a tone that was a little bit lighthearted to, to speak to that. Because again, we didn't want to come at, at as heavy handed. So we actually addressed the, you know, working from home does not equal child care. But however, if you have a sick child or a sick dog or you're sick or whatever, then that's why you should take, you know, time off to take care of yourself or your family member or whatever. So we did try to address it um, and give some guidelines to say, okay, again, we trust that you're gonna make the right decisions, um, but, you know, we didn't want it to be so black and white that it just, again, seemed really heavy handed. And that's partly our culture as well. Um, so, you know, so far it really has worked because, you know, when we rolled it out, we thought, is everyone now going to be gone every Friday? Because it was in the beginning of the summer, by the way. So, you know, in Chicago, <laughs> summer still lasts very long. So, like, we're all out. Um, but, you know, what it turned out was, because, you know, we said part of those guidelines was, you also know what your responsibilities are in your clients and if you need to be accessible to your clients and things like that. And so it's really how you, the individuals manage it. And, and so far it's been very manageable. And a lot of it had already been kind of happening or informal, and this just gave people, again, guidelines as well as, if needed, kind of sanction that it's okay to ask to work remotely. Because for some studios, very much the, the culture. Yes, you know, whatever you need to do, you can get your work done. Some others, and this goes back to the leaders and their styles, yeah. no, it was like, nope, you have to be here unless you're getting your sick or, you know, you know whatnot. So, so, and so far it's worked, but I think there's there's a level of discretion that, that we really want our staff to to embrace and, and you know, again, they're, they're responsible. So we haven't seen abuse, you know, and, and again, we didn't, we, we, we weren't quite sure of like how many folks would do it. And it really is a much manageable number and, you know, they're still, you know, supporting the clients as they need to, et cetera, so. How did you roll that policy out? Um, we did it by um, really just kind of going to studios and okay. saying, hey, just a meeting and verbal. Yeah, okay. and just talk about it. Because again, I think for some, for some, they were already doing it. And so it was like, no brainer. And you know, we've hired a lot of new folks. And so it wasn't explicitly right. shared with them that yeah. this is okay to do. Like I said, we were kind of sanctioning that it's okay to ask to work remotely. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was really just more of a dialogue. Okay. Very, okay. very informal. For other policies surrounding discrimination and diversity and inclusion, what do you three think are, is the best way for firms to communicate that? In person, because it can be a little sensitive, in writing so that everyone knows and has clear expectations, or somewhere in between? I mean, yeah, I'll start. Let me tell you what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so it's, it's both. Some policies you, de you definitely have to have it right. If I'm auditing a company and for whatever purpose, and I don't see that they have an EEO policy written down in the handbook, that's mm -hmm. something I'll flag. And I'll say you need to do that yesterday. <laughs> Flip side of that is, you know, the less we can put it in writing, the better it is, right? Because then we don't have a record of. But I mean, it's true. So you don't want to put everything in writing. You don't want to promise something, right. for example, right. put that in writing, and then be in a situation, of, you know, some period of time later where that's going to be presented to you in an adversarial scenario. That's the worst case, obviously, scenario, but that's the way that we like to think. But there are, to answer your question, there are policies that you definitely need to have uh, in writing, uh, and most companies already have, are doing that. Yeah. We, we actually, I mean, when I 
this very timely because we're actually um, uh, in the middle of doing code of conduct training. You'll like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there is a code of conduct, and that yeah. you know that kind of harks back to some of the policies that you were talking about. But um, we, and so they are written. But what we our approach was to, to have dialogues around it, and so it was really me and our regional council having a number of different sessions with you know our entire staff within our region to have this conversation. You know, and very um, typical. Uh, situations that you might find yourself in. As an example, you know, the Cubs hopefully are going to win, <laughs> but you know, Cubs tickets, but then there are Disney Cubs tickets, what you should do, what should you do with them, you know, and things like that. And so we really try to create some real life scenarios that staff are in, and it wasn't a, you know, you can't do that, but it is, here's what the guidelines are for the firm, and it, and it really, really was just more of a flag to say, if you're, if you're in this kind of situation, then you should have a dialogue just to talk about it and say maybe there is a reason because it's a networking or it really is is a business you know development opportunity that you should go to the Cubs game mm -hmm. you know those types of things and so really you know to that and that's why we thought it would be more it would be better to have these these dialogues as opposed to just you know here's the manual and right. you know, or online training because that is definitely a tool that they have to code conduct. Uh, yeah. Um, so say something unfortunate happens, and has an issue. <laughs> what what happens? What procedures must a firm's human resources department follow, and how does the best case scenario shake out? Say if there's a complaint or an issue. You want to take? I mean, uh, you yeah, have, yeah. you are in HR, so. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, it's something that, I mean, part of code of conduct, but certainly, you know, that I try to share with the staff in our offices, I'm a resource for them. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, part of it is knowing, you know, just the basics, you know, whether it's about, I'll just throw it out, like harassment, yeah. um, and understanding what that looks like. And that one of our number one concerns as a firm is the safety of our staff. And so if they feel uncomfortable in any kind of situation, even if they don't think talk to me or to talk to their studio director and just say, you know, I was in this situation. Mm -hmm. um, so so oftentimes, and, and it's making myself accessible. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, and, and remember that, HR is a resource for you. And so, and it's confidential. Um, if you don't feel comfortable going to HR, you can go to your manager. And oftentimes they will come to HR to say, hey, you know, I had this conversation. I'm concerned about this individual. And that we can engage. Because again, we're not coming at it necessarily compliance but more protecting you mm -hmm. and then you know unfortunately if there are those situations where we do have to investigate to figure out what's really going on if we feel that there really is um, you know for lack of a better word bad behavior going on then we do do that and you know we kind of talk the individuals through that so they understand what's going to happen mm -hmm. but again nothing that they've done wrong but you know what we need to understand the facts and just get you know, in circumstances, we engage, you know, individuals like Candace for guidance. I mean, frankly, you know, it's not my area of expertise, and so some things do get sticky. And so to really um, have Candace's expertise to walk us through how do we manage that collectively. Um, so. Yeah, that's right. I mean, ideally, it would be yeah. exactly that. It would start at the HR level, 
and, and what you said, Michelle, is exactly right. You know, if you have a solid HR, that's gonna, usually when I get a case, it's, um, great times when I get a case, it's actually gone through solid HR and then they're handing it to me and just saying, here's what we've worked up so far, here's what we've done, help us walk through these issues together. Um, uh, and it's kind of a, a combination of, of both of those things. But I do wanna point out that HR is both uh, like this whole understanding of how complaint procedures happen internally needs to be thought of both from the employee who, um, I think what we tend to focus on is employee to whom something bad has happened. Mm -hmm. You know, like the us, like the me, whenever I think about it, like what would I do if I felt <laughs> a certain way, right? Not the manager, but the, the issue I see more is that the manager doesn't know what to do. Right. The manager doesn't know what to do when somebody complains, somebody shares something with them. And actually, that's where things can get even stickier because they didn't know and report that up. Yeah. Um, yes. Or, you know, they didn't that's handle right. it or say, the, say something right back to them. So, uh, you know, a lot of the training that I end up doing is for managers uh, and, and reminding them to read the handbook and reminding them to know what the policies are. Employees, I'm going to know what the policy is because I'm. I don't want to get fired, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to read that, but my boss, boss, boss probably isn't, uh, and just does his thing, and is going to keep doing his thing uh, until somebody says, hey, you can't do that anymore. But, but HR is an employee of the company. Yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't feel comfortable talking to the HR person about anything like that, but our company does have a third party, an outside party. Okay. Because you would be afraid it wouldn't stay confidential? Yes. Mm -hmm. Got it. Well, what, what is the mission of HR? Is it to protect the firm or the employers? It's right. The That's the issue. Yes. It, it is a balance. Um, I mean, I think that you know we are part of the firm. So we are trying, we are an employee advocate. Yeah. At the same time, we are trying to minimize and mitigate risk for the firm as well when it comes to these kinds of situations. But, but we come into it as an objective party understand what's really going on, you know. Um, yeah, and, and, and actually, there have been a number of times where, I mean, I understand what you're saying, because it also depends on your relationship with HR and how they are, because the traditional HR has been that compliance, they're the police, they say no, all of that. And I hate that when people talk about it, because that is not the HR that, that I practice, and that, is, again, is really, we, we are an advocate for you, and trying to understand and be that partner um, with the business as well as for the employees. But I understand that HR is still going through that shift. Well, and, so, and our, our HR director it will guide you in that direction. I've never talked to him, yeah. by the way. Not, not <laughs> yeah. HR. Like, I'll never. I will not go to my grave without talking to that person. <laughs> I've talked to the HR director. I haven't talked to the outside one. Yeah. But um, I'm just saying, um, he's constantly directing us. To go outside. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he's constantly telling us, you know, you have this other person you can talk to. If, you is it if you're not counseling service, or what? What, is, what is the external service? Um, gosh, what, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's some advocate for us that we can go and talk to when we need to talk about firm things. Because I've never talked to them.
more very specific questions, actually. And she said something earlier that oh, gosh. Uh, I, I read, I read The Economist every week, and they had an issue a couple weeks ago that it looked at gender leadership and pay gap issues around the world. And they actually put out a very provocative idea that they think the very biggest key to addressing both of those is actually putting in place really robust uh, maternity leave policies huh. that, and making it comfortable to take it. And they're saying, you know, until that happens, the only countries that are anywhere close to equity on both of those are the ones that have really good maternity leave. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I understand what you brought up. I'm wondering what you guys think of that. It's a pretty <laughs> unique idea for Mary. <coughs> Yeah, I mean, Sweden, yes, Sweden, men take the paternity leave, but the culture is it's okay to do that. Right. If we don't have that culture yeah. right now, right? I mean, Zuckerberg was trying to be a role model for this, you know? He yeah. has four months paternity leave, and he said at the beginning he was going to take four months. He took two. Yeah. I mean, that's better than a lot of people, but... Yeah, and, and that's where the younger generation is going to shift things, right. yeah. is in the role modeling. Yeah. So, yeah, we get men have got a role model list to other men, or it's going to be seen as that's weak right. or, you know. And I think, I think that's exactly right, and it's a cultural shift. So when I was talking about benefits earlier, the point I was trying to make by saying benefits don't matter, <laughs> I'll stand by that. <laughs> I said it. Is that they don't matter if you don't have the cultural shift, right? Yeah, when you, right. if you don't have both, but you just have one, the benefits one, that doesn't matter. But your two questions are actually are related, even though you said we can choose one. They're both the same answer. We don't. Whenever I do diversity and inclusion conversations or any conversations around this, which I've done before, the audience is self-selective, right? <laughs> like y'all are like, yeah, I know, I experience this every day. Like I'm with you, girl. Like let's do this. and the role modeling, that has to happen in conversations yes. like this. We need men, we need white men to come sit in these yes. conferences. I need my partner at Alston and Bird to come when I host a diversity and inclusion thing. Yes. So it's the same answer. It's this yeah. role modeling totally idea true. to help um, shift those paradigms. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe should make it mandatory for men. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we should make a lot of things yeah. mandatory. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm going to get my license to work tomorrow. <laughs>
tactics to it, and mm -hmm. there's not one easy answer. Yeah, and we see, I mean, the, the gender role issue that was discussed at, so beautifully in the beginning, um, I think shows that gender norms affect and impact both men and women, both people who identify as men and women as well, yeah. push back to say, right? So um, yeah. I think that that was articulated well, and it's a point that needs to not go on, on deaf ears, that yeah. that the what men have been genderized to be uh, is, it can be detrimental. Uh, and so that's a, another approach to answering that question. I do want to, I, I would be remiss if to not say that the intersection of race and gender and all of these things is something that we haven't yeah. talked about. I know we're trying to wrap up, but, but also be conscious of where you have people at the table who have intersecting identity markers and, and the things that, um, the way that race and gender have intersected, for example, where you have um, norms about race and gender competing and happening at the same time, then we're really seeing marginalized uh, groups getting the impact of that. So that's another huge topic that I, I, I assume it's probably an issue in architecture too, so I thought I would <laughs> yeah, say definitely. that as well. Yeah. Definitely. Maybe one more. Just want to thank So, you know, if it was a Hispanic, you know, uh, affinity group, 
that they were targeting, you know, a, a laundry detergent, you know, that for this community, but they wanted to test it with that population. So what they said was starting to kind of blend them, still providing that community and that social, you know, environment for these groups, but blending them into the business so that they could really help drive and impact the business in a very specific way, because it models the society. And so I thought that was a really interesting way to evolve the, the groups, um, but there's definitely still that need for that. Final closing thoughts. We're out of time. Thank you so much to all three of you. I kind of want to just like shake <laughs> a bigger raise for. <laughs>